My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Hilder. Welcome back to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. I'm so glad to have you here with us. I am still buzzing from this last weekend where we staged a live taping of transmissions at the Philosophical Research Society, the Los Angeles campus founded in 1934 by esoteric scholar Manley Palmer Hall. Though our show has included live talks in the past, namely ones conducted by AD founder Justin Gage at Gold Diggers as part of his talk show series. This was the first time I've done a live transmission, and I couldn't have asked for a better guest than Matt Marble. Matt is an artist, author, audio producer, and director of the American Museum of Paramusicology, best known for his podcasts, which include Secret Sound, an exploration of the metaphysical history of American music, and the interview show The Hidden Present. He is the author of Buddhist Bubblegum, Esotericism in the Creative Process of Arthur Russell, and that's what we gathered at PRS to discuss. It was such a treat hanging out there at PRS in Los Feliz, uh, touring its campus and hanging out in its vast library with Matt. Uh, We were able to kind of get situated and uh, pour over some really fantastic literature and then take the stage to discuss Arthur Russell and listen to his music with an auditorium full of Transmissions fans. As you'll hear me repeat in the following recording, sometimes doing this podcast can feel a little distant. I'm not always sure who's hearing or connecting with our talks, but being in the flesh with folks was both humbling and energizing. Manly Palmer Hall founded PRS with a dedication to the insolment of all arts, sciences, and crafts, and I hope that you find this talk as insoling as I did. Special thanks to our friends at PRS for making this happen, especially Alex McDonald and AV director Sarah Alessandrini, who you'll hear us refer to throughout the talk. She was queuing up the the music. Their help uh, was essential to make this happen, and we also wanna thank Steve Knudsen of Audico Records for getting the word out And of course, extend a warm thank you and sonic hug to everybody who turned up for the show, both in person and via Zoom. Uh, Being part of this special presentation meant so much to all of us. Before we roll tape, a quick reminder, Transmissions is brought to you by listeners just like yourself who pledge their support on our Patreon. For exclusive audio, notes, radio extras, and more, check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. And if you're looking for another way to support the show, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That helps new folks find the show. And we're always hoping that as the show grows, the audience can grow along with it. And that's one way you can help hip people to the kinds of conversations we're having. You can also just share it with a friend, send them a link, let them know that Aquarium Drunkard is putting out a podcast that means something to you. Thank you so much for spreading the word, and thank you for being with us once again. Without further chatter, let's get into it. Here's Matt Marble, live from PRS, 
discussing Buddhist bubblegum esotericism in the creative process of Arthur Russell. Check, check. Hey, thanks everybody for being here. I'm so excited to welcome you to a live taping of Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Uh, we've been doing this show for a while now. I think we relaunched the pod in 2016 with Bonnie Prince Billy. And in 2020, a weird event happened where all of a sudden I had a lot more time on my hands than normal and we took the podcast weekly and that's the way we've been doing it for the past couple of years and ever since i got my hands on a copy of buddhist bubblegum esotericism in the creative process of arthur russell by matt marble i was like i've got to get matt on transmissions and that's what we're doing right now i'm so glad to have him on his podcasts secret sound and the hidden present are both essential listens and i'm really excited to have him here with us so let's welcome to the stage matt marble Hello. <laughs> hey, Matt. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Wonderful. Matt is, uh, I, we've had the pleasure of spending the last couple hours hanging around PRS, and it's been pretty fantastic. We got to go in the library, and not just in the library, because he's so cool, they let us go into a special vault where they keep all sorts of hidden secret stuff that we're not allowed to tell you guys about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just books and stuff. Anyway, I'm so excited to get the chance to sit here and talk with you about Arthur Russell. And uh, to get things started, I think we should just uh, maybe ask when you first heard Arthur Russell, what was it about his music that drew you in? The first thing I heard was World of Echo when that was reissued by Audica Records. And I, at the time I was studying abroad in Paris and a friend sent me a link to uh, the record and. I just pressed play and kind of slowly fell back in my bed and listened to the whole record all the way through and was just blissed out. It was one of the most amazing listening experiences I ever had. 
And you know, as soon as it was over, I was like, who the fuck is this? <laughs> like, I, I want to know more. And the more I learned, you know, you, once you start scratching the Arthur Russell itch, you, you, you find something different than you're looking for because you'll find, you know, mutant disco, experimental disco music, or like minimalist orchestrations, folk songs, country music, pop. And the more I discovered this diversity of his aesthetics, I was just kind of mesmerized by it. And I was like, what is connecting all these things? And then that led me to the biography and the uh, Matt Wolf's video documentary, both of which are incredible. And you know they, they discuss his Buddhism in that in, in their work, but it just left me with a lot more questions than answers. And so then I contacted Steve at uh, Audica Records and was kind of wowed by the archive that was there. Right, which gave you uh, a lot to chew on yeah. for this book. Uh, how about you know music and spirituality? It's one of those things that, like Alex alluded to in his intro, they it's easy to think of them as being connected. When did you, as a young person, kind of tie the two together in your mind? How did how did that happen for you? Um, as a teenager in Mississippi, um, psychedelics did help facilitate that for me, and uh, as well as like totally sober, out-of-body experiences while playing music. Like, uh, kind of astral projection type experiences that sure. I was kind of shocked by. And I don't know, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people, I'm very intuitive, and I, I kind of get lost in the music. Like, there, there was that Disney movie that came out recently um, where they kind of depict that. But, yeah, so I went to art school, music school, and in both cases, I wanted to talk about intuition. Right. I wanted to, that's what I was wanting to study, and nobody was teaching that. And so, kind of all my life, I've been looking to understand the nature of intuitive experience more deeply. And I'd always kind of pushed the occult to the side because of its sensational face. Sure. Um, and it was really by engaging Arthur and the Vajrayana tradition that inspired him that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that these traditions um, are really the most kind of advanced intuitive disciplines in human history. These, this is the language, this is the philosophy, this is the practical methods that we have developed to enhance our, our intuitive experience or, or connect to it and express it. Yeah. And so I was just supremely inspired by that, the deeper I, I'm not a Buddhist, for the record. I'm not a religious scholar. I studied music composition, but for me, music has always been a very spiritual thing. It's been a very symbolic thing. I'm interested in the poetry of life, and I think Vajrayana and the metaphysics that it's under the larger umbrella of really helped me navigate that in a way that was satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Before you before you wrote this book, I mean, some of your first engagement with Arthur's music was learning it, right? I mean, you started notating out stuff from World of Echo on yeah. your own? Yeah. What did that process reveal to you? Because that's a, a record, and I'm sure everybody here knows World of Echo. It's, uh, it's a masterpiece, and I was telling you that I was listening to it today on the airplane, and I was blown away by the fact that 
there's no drums on that record, even yeah. though it feels so rhythmic and there's so many interesting pulses, melodic pulses and, and all that stuff. So what did learning that reveal to you about it? And, and was it a challenge? I wouldn't call it a challenge. It was, it was so uh, pleasurable to spend time with it the way that I did. And I just, I wanted to be immersed in it. I wanted to get in the world. And the world of Echo. Yeah, yeah. the world of Echo. And so I, I just started, when I was a student at Princeton, I started kind of just writing it by ear. I, I've always kind of loved transcribing sounds, just not even to do anything with them. I just like notating sounds I hear. And, but the melodies, both in his cello and in his playing and his singing, were so nuanced with ornamentation and subtle things going on that I just kind of wanted to map it out for myself and, and just kind of go, oh, wow, you know? Yeah. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and that led, I mean, basically, there's a direct line to the book from that point where you're just getting more and more interested in what Arthur did and the way he did it, right? Yeah. I started, I wrote an essay on World of Echo and then that kind of, after I did that, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is, I read Buddhist Bubblegum uh, when... I was, my washing machine broke, so I was going to the laundromat a lot, and uh, I was hanging out at the laundromat reading your book, and that's a good place to read your book, it turns out. Um, I found it's myself, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very portable book, uh, and, uh, and I found myself thinking about, like, you know, uh, uh, when, you, when we're talking about, when we talk about things like spirituality, when we talk about things like esotericism, these sound so lofty, they're such lofty concepts. At the same time, um, I think my favorite thing about Arthur as, a, as an artist is the way he breaks down those distinctions between what's high, what's low, what's lofty, what's mundane. And uh, reading your book, which gets very intricate about like, you know, specific notations and the way he would, he would do things. I found myself struck by the fact that there's all this intent and all this sort of, uh, you know, creative intelligence at work, and yet the, the music sounds so instinctual and so, you know, rooted in intuition, like you're saying. So yeah. I, had, I think that was a good place to, to read the book and to reflect on Arthur's music because he didn't want to be pigeonholed at all. Yeah. And I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons why people are still talking about him as much as we are, probably more than and they I, were when he was making music. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's also like seemingly always more to discover about him. I mean, there's constantly new records coming out. Yeah. And new, new perspectives on him. And I mean, I remember when I was working on this book, I was talking with Phil Kneeblock about it. And his response was, didn't somebody already write a book about Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, but this one's different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, but it's true. You reveal things. That, I mean, there, there's, there are biographies. You know, you, you share biographical information in this book. And that's actually would be a good place to start. Because Arthur's engagement with Buddhism came uh, pretty early in his life. But he didn't... Uh, well, he got busted, right? He got busted for pot, and he got uh, sent to uh, basically a retreat in the in the Bay Area. Can you tell me a little bit about where he ended up and how it shaped him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he was kind of exploring John Cage, John Coltrane, Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, the Beats, and all that as, as a teenager, and started doing drugs and was kind of 
really trying to get out of the home situation, just wanted to explore. And he got busted for marijuana possession. And instead of take, I, I, I think it was that he did not want to go home, so he, he asked to be released to this Buddhist commune in the Bay Area. And so on Valentine's Day in 1969, the police dropped him off at Kailas Shugendo, which was a kind of a strange uh, commune. Uh, I guess they're all a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this one, you know, was kind of popularizing firewalking, for example. And like they were on, a, I believe they were on CBS demonstrating it. And it's a, a curious mix of uh, Tibetan Tantra and uh, a, an obscure branch of Shingon Buddhism. So an obscure branch of an already obscure kind of Vajrayana tradition that was very ascetic, very physical, very mountain-based. So they would be doing mantras, hiking up the mountain, Mount Shasta, for example. They would be doing fire walking on the beach. They would uh, do all kinds of stuff like that, very physical activities. And for Arthur, I mean, I have to imagine that that instilled a sense of discipline that maybe hadn't been there before. Is that, is that fair yeah, to I say? Yeah, I think he felt he needed that, too. Um, yeah. And so he was, um, there was one person I read a quote of who was describing a young boy there, and he was like the most devoted student was a, a young boy named Arthur, or on the commune he was known as Jigme, which means a fearless one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that fearlessness probably plays out through his entire career. Anybody who can swing like directly from disco into modern classical into, <laughs> you know, uh, country music, that requires a certain amount of fear, fearlessness. I think we have a maybe a photo from that era. Is that right? Do we have the? Yeah, um, Sarah, if we could see the fire ceremony. Yeah. So this is the goma ceremony, and I kind of described this in detail in the book. But fire ceremonies were pretty central to Kailash Shugendo, and as uh, the most general way uh, uh, to describe it would be a, as kind of symbols of purification and practices of purification. So it would be like. Uh, um, mantra chanting, um, offerings of food and herbs, and constantly just keeping the fire going. Mm -hmm. And these were long, kind of en enduring rituals. And like Arthur even, I think, lived in a tiny apartment at once, and he would have like a little cauldron that he would build a fire in to do his goma ritual. So it's something that stayed with him, you know, pretty much all through his life. The, his, that first engagement with Buddhism, it really took at that point. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he had, he had, a, he had a little trouble with this guy, with uh, sitting down by the fire, Neville Ajari Warwick. That was uh, the guy running the, the show? Mm-hmm. What, what was that trouble like? He just had a kind of a sharp personality and was very um, uh, demanding. Yeah. And was also fairly unfriendly with Arthur's attachment to music. He thought that was getting in the way of his Buddhism, so he would banish him to the closet to play cello. And ultimately, that's what caused him to leave the commune after like two years. Yeah, you can't come between a man and his cello. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> I think we have, um, I think we've got a recording that sort of would probably demonstrate uh, how this Oh, can we hear a little of uh, the Pacific High mantras?
fantastic. Who are, so that that's that involves Allen Ginsberg, who yeah, uh, he's kind of leading the show on that one with yeah. the harmonium, and that's with the commune that Arthur was on. Also had kind of a resident musical ensemble called the Kalashugendo Mantrik Mantrik Sun Band, and they opened up for the Grateful Dead. Um, this is also during this time Arthur played with Alice Coltrane. Uh, we haven't found quite the details of that, but we believe that's the case. And, and Allen Ginsberg was kind of in the mix as well. And actually, could we show the fire ceremony too? Just real quick, I wanted to show, this is the only photo I have of, we know of Arthur at the commune. And this is with the guru Neville Warwick walking the fired coals and Arthur chanting mantra. That's Arthur in the blue sweater? Yeah. It's a really cool sweater. <laughs> He was hip, you know. He's a, he was a cool looking guy. Um, and just to follow up on the track that we just heard, um, can we put the Ginsburg mantra photo up? And this is the score for the piece that we were just listening to. And I'll just point it out since we're going to see similar things going forward. But one thing that Arthur was really fixated on was like the individual note or syllable. So. Here's a good example where you can see him pairing individual notes to individual syllables of a mantra, and this would be running through a lot of his music. I think there's a quote in the book where you say something, Arthur referred to one note infinite theories, is that, oh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. I find like, you know, his, his, attach, his attachment to those like syllabic like elements obviously ties into the notion of mantra and which is something that plays throughout the work. Anybody who's heard Arthur Russell's work knows that there's a, a mantric kind of quality to the way he sings. Uh, so it's, it's awesome that that was like pretty much right away, you yeah. know, in terms of his musical development. Uh, you cite that in, in the book also, George Harrison said that, you know, after he got turned on to Hare Krishna and, and Hinduism, that he wanted to spiritually infiltrate pop culture. And you, uh, you have the sense that Arthur wanted something similar, uh, maybe not stated quite as directly, but um, what do you think it was that Arthur wanted to get into the music that would then find its way to the listeners? Yeah, I mean, he was, it was definitely more subliminal, subliminal than that. Um, I mean, he, would, he was essentially trying to kind of channel kind of what we were talking about early, earlier, this kind of sense of bodhicitta or um, bliss and uh, blissful presence. And that's why a lot of his music involves very symbolic imagery drawn from the Vajrayana tradition, as well as uh, reflections on childhood. Um, that, that becomes like a, a theme running through his work, for sure. Yeah, the way he refers back to childhood, and um, again, we were chatting about this earlier, it's like you hear uh, so often in spiritual practice that maintaining a childlike attitude is crucial. Arthur was, um, despite his music often being intensely beautiful and very um, moving, he was also a really playful person, mm. and he wasn't interested in being all that serious. In fact, you found very often 
when you would reach out to people to talk about him, they were, they were more interested in emphasizing those qualities. They're like, yeah, maybe he was into whatever, but like, he was just fun to hang out with. Yeah, yeah. And I find that that playfulness, um, I think that playfulness really helps to undercut any kind of self-seriousness that would maybe accompany somebody who is playing with ideas that are this lofty, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, he, he once said, that, you know, comedy is the highest form of art. Yeah. Um, <laughs> earlier pieces, you know, he was uh, upholding like Bugs Bunny as the archetypal mystic and things like that. You know? I mean, I don't think I can argue, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, and, 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 and to the point that like, ch you know, childhood and memories of his childhood, Arthur grew up in Iowa and wasn't, uh, wasn't a big city kid coming up. But memories of his childhood, the way those get into the music is really important and interesting. And then you also, we were talking for Aquarium Drunkard um, as a little pre-interview for this event about how he would he would play his music for children and try to get their take, right? Yeah, he would play it for like relatives' children, and if if they didn't like it, he was like, "I've got to redo it." <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what those kids thought of World of Echo. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so that speaks to another thing is that uh, while Arthur was definitely interested in uh, classical music and spiritual music, sacred sounds, very experimental stuff, he also had a, a very distinct pop side, right? And that's something that I think is easy to forget uh, in the face of all of his incredible kind of cello work. But he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't opposed to commercial success, right? I mean, he was, no. that was something he was interested in? Yeah, definitely. And uh, when he moved to New York, you know, part of the purpose was to make money with his music or by any other means to give money back to his uh, spiritual teacher, Yuko Nonomura. This is the person he studied with after he left the commune. And this was a more kind of streamlined Shingon tradition. And one thing he loved about Yuko Nonomura was that he was a Shingon priest, um, but he was also an insurance salesman. And so it was instead of this idea that you have to be on a mountaintop and you know hiking mantras and and this very ascetic life, Arthur Yuko modeled for him like no, you can you can be a Buddhist practitioner and just be in the world. Right. You know? And he was liberated by that, and that allowed him to be like, okay, well I can go to New York and be a musician and be and continue my Buddhist practice without compromising either thing. Yeah, because if you can be like an insurance salesman, it's got to be okay to play yeah. cello, right? <laughs> um, John Hammond w was interested at one point and referred to Arthur as potentially the next Bruce Springsteen, I think, <laughs> uh, which I guess it beats getting labeled another New Dylan. So, I mean, there's that. Um, but I don't think that most people would think of Arthur and Springsteen on the, the direct level. But that said, we've got uh, a track from, um, from that sort of demonstrates that pop that side, side from the Iowa Dream record. Sarah, can we pull up Come to Life and listen to a little of that one? Strange life I go back On the blankets Quilted and banded 
first and foremost. Beautiful. Uh, I almost feel bad talking instead of just listening to it. Um, we did try to figure out exactly who that is singing harmonies and uh, the, unknown. Uh, unknown, unknown vocalist uh, singing with Arthur there, but really incredible and speaks to that notion of Arthur as a pop musician too. That wasn't something that ever really went away for him, for him in his head, right? Like he was interested in this notion of of pop, kind of throughout his whole his whole career, right? Sure, and, and you know, part of this kind of transmit, transmitting the Dharma through music for him, you know, he realized that pop music is the the music that reaches the widest audience. So he's like, if I can reach people through pop music, I can reach, I can have the most positive effect possible. Yeah. And I think that was a motivating fact as well. But I think he also just loved songs and songwriting and yeah and he's so good at it i mean all those th thankfully we have like a label like autica that's out there like disseminating this music because there's so much of it and so much of it was was not heard you know widely during arthur's lifetime so the fact that people are out there fighting the good fight and getting it to us and that we get to hear all these great kind of pop pop songs from arthur uh, many of which feel like they could totally have been hits yeah Something that I uh, always think about in terms of the music that I'm most drawn to is, you know, I love the allure of, uh, of a sort of mysterious artist, an artist who you can't quite put your finger on and you can't figure out exactly. Was there any part of you that was worried that you were going to dispel any of the, the beautiful kind of mystery of Arthur when you started working on this book? Not really, um, because I knew my intentions were sincere, and I, I'm, I feel like I'm put on this earth to preserve the mystery to a certain extent. <laughs> Personally, that's, that's yeah. I feel yeah. that's my calling. Um, and so when I see somebody like Arthur, who is doing exactly that, I know we're just going to the same place, and it's, there's nothing to um, to reveal except your your presence with that. Yeah. And and that's what something I find so beautiful about his music and it's that kind of enigmatic quality that you can't put your finger on. And it's not really trying to reveal how or what that is, mm -hmm. but just the inspirations that helped lead him to to the creations that he did. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's like it's it's great to know one that the mystery is is pretty durable when it comes to Arthur because you can know exactly what he's doing and still find something elusive about it. Yeah, and to yeah. me, that's like another quality that I think is really important and fascinating. Um, I was going to, you know, we were talking a little bit about how Arthur was unafraid to cross like genre lines. He was also, while Buddhism was sort of his main focus, he was interested in kind of a, a, a wide variety of esoteric thinking, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, he was in California in the 60s and 70s and around a lot of it, studied North Indian music, North Indian raga, and the kind of spiritual background associated with that music. But he was also picking up uh, astrology and numerology, and those would be following him as well into the music into the 1980s. Yeah. He, you know, in addition to that uh, refusal to settle into just one way of thinking or just one kind of music, something that I'm sure probably stymied his commercial uh, prospects when he was in the middle of making stuff was to take uh, an abrupt 
left turn into another style when somebody's like, I thought you were the folk guy. Right, and right. he's like, no, I'm the disco guy. Uh, disco was a huge thing for Arthur, right? I mean, what was, what, what, when you were looking over the notes, what did you find about his early immersion in club culture? How did that impact him? Yeah, well, when he first went to, you know, the disco clubs in New York, he, you know, his first thought was upon hearing like these incredibly high fidelity sound systems and the uh, kind of ecstatic nature that the experience that the dancers were having, he was like, this is like a temple of sound. He, he immediately saw something sacred in what was going on. And David Minusco did that as well when he was founding The Loft, which started as like kind of LSD listening sessions where he would make mixtapes. And for, at first they were just kind of, kind of tweaking on the couch and enjoying themselves. And it gradually kind of became more and more of a dance party until yeah. it really helped define disco itself. And Arthur was, a, a, he was right there with him. I think that like, well, let's, let's take a, a quick listen to Go Bang, which uh, will demonstrate a little bit of where Arthur's head was when it came to, to disco music. Deeply, deeply rhythmic music, very focused on the dance floor. There are lyrics eventually, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that those lyrics also speak to Arthur's ability to express things in a very non-dualistic way. The song Go Bang, you know, he's saying, you know, I, I, Go Bang has like all these different connotations. There's the sexual, Arthur, uh, was somebody who had relationships with men and women throughout his life, uh, was not by any means a monk when it comes to that part of things. Um, but it also speaks to a sort of elemental bang, right? And, you know, to me, I think like that Arthur was able to sort of get that holy wisdom into a disco track really speaks to where he was coming from. What do, what, what do you think when, you, when, you're, when you're engaging with his sort of mutant disco work, how does that, uh, what does that reveal about his spirituality to you? Well, as far as the erotic, um, you know, that's a major aspect of, that's, that's like a, a gateway within Vajrayana. Um, and it's really about transmuting that sexual energy into a more kind of spiritual awareness and Arthur kind of used disco to do that. And a lot of the lyrics are, are kind of double-sided or multi-sided, uh, speaking to both cosmic and worldly kind of concerns. Yeah. And the eroticism is both kind of worldly and cosmic as well, you know? Right. And it, he really, you know, it's something that's pretty special in that music, I think. Putting your music up online is not always the easiest thing in the world to figure out, but DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and, as an artist, you keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. 
A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, all the major streaming services. You can use it to edit your lyrics and your song credits. So important in the internet age to let people know the kind of people you're collaborating with. And uh, DistroKid makes that easy. You can also see all your stats from the streamers and, of course, add a credit card to purchase album extras. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. The thing that I, we talked about this notion of first thought, uh, best thought, and how that applies to Arthur's creative practice. But one thing that's, that it's important to remember is that doesn't always necessarily mean the very first thing you think of, per se, is the best thought. But can you talk a little bit about what that, how that played into the way he thought about basically where the ideas were coming from and what ideas were, were worth seizing on and, mm -hmm. sort of, and sort of extrapolating out? Yeah, the, the first thought, best thought concept is kind of emerges out of Tibetan Buddhism through Chagyam Trungpa, who Arthur didn't study with, but was inspired by his writings. Mm -hmm. Uh, also very critical of him as well, because he was a pretty controversial guru. But, you know, for example, especially within a disco music, first thought, best thought would be stuff like in the middle of a recording session, let's open the window and just let the noises come in. Mm -hmm. Or let's invite the dancers from the disco club to dance while we're recording the music. Um, and it's not necessarily like, uh, yeah, like not the first thought, but it's just the freshest thought. So even when you're working on something, Sometimes when you land on something that works, you hold tightly to it, and that can ultimately get in the way. When mm. at first it begins as something like haha, an aha moment, you know. Yeah. And so it's like it's just not being attached to the things. Um, once you once you arrive at that fresh thought, it's just not being attached to it. It's allowing it to be a continuous discovery. And I think Arthur really mastered that. <laughs> he was open too to just like in the something that when we were talking about World of Echo and I was mentioning how I had never noticed that he says, you know, oh, that's good at some point. You know, like he, he just says it. He doesn't sing it. And it, it sounds like almost like an aside, but and you were saying that's a, that he, he's, he notated that yeah. and that he, like, it, it's in the, in the actual score, it says that's good, yeah. like written into the score. And he also would sometimes what, what was the story we were we were kicking around about how he he was in the middle of a session and he started just reading off the score like instead of you know he's playing the music that's in the score but then he starts reciting the textual description like play slowly or you know <laughs> retard retardando or whatever and right. he just starts reciting that as if that is part of the performance or the so good that you're referring to in World of Echo there's a part in the I think it's soon to be innocent fun where you hear him go, oh good. And what's happening is he's playing the melodies that he's written out on his notebook, and in the very kind of marginal corner, he's penciled in, oh good, and he's just <laughs> read that live in the moment. I think that's just such an incredible thing. He seemed like he was always open to like, seizing on those uh, spontane spontaneous things in, in his work. Um, my, one of my favorite Arthur stories that kind of speaks to that is a, a couple of years ago I, I interviewed Gary Lucas, the guitarist, yeah. 
And he, he talked to me about how one time he set up um, a recording session uh, with Arthur as in the producer role uh, for a young rapper that he was a big fan of, who's Vin Diesel from the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> and so, and first off, that's, I, I can't ever stop thinking about Vin Diesel and Arthur Russell in the same room, yeah. hanging out. Uh, Vin was, uh, was a rapper and, and very much trying to make his mark. <laughs> so Gary set him up, um, and I guess he got in and he was just kind of like, being really like macho and like kind of like stilted and not, did not feel comfortable. Didn't Wasn't know what resonating. He, yeah. he, it was not resonating. And Arthur was just kind of like, yeah, you know, like we're doing this. The recordings did come out a couple of years ago, not in any, like they didn't try to sell them to anybody. They just exist on the internet. Um, so you can look them up. But apparently Arthur was game to try something completely off the map, yeah. as far as he knew. But um, in that particular instance, it didn't work out so good. Um, <laughs> but I guess that speaks to his, that kind of crazy wisdom that was at work in, in what he did. And also just like, yeah, sure, I'll do rap. You know, yeah, I work mean, on a rap project. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. I mean, it was definitely coming right out of the disco thing, you yeah, know, yeah. and like that it, it all was one continue. I mean, I absolutely am 100% sure that had Arthur not passed away when he did, we would be hearing him make some truly strange, okay. like, trap beats or, uh, <laughs> I don't know, uh, maybe he'd be hanging out with Aphex Twin or something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what he would be doing, but it would be weird and cool. Um... Ginsburg and, and Arthur, they, 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 were, they, they had a, a brief fling, I believe. But they were then, lovers, yeah. But then also just remained very close friends and collaborators. And neighbors. And, and, and he put such a beautiful, he put it beautifully. He said that Ar he believed Arthur's aim was to transmit the Dharma through the most elemental form. And I thought that was just such a beautiful way to think about what he was doing. But... You were able to, for this book, dig uh, much deeper into his actual notations. And uh, I think we've got some images that we might want to pull up and talk about a little, little bit about that. Do you want to? Yeah, I have a few to show. I think we can do back to back, maybe even. Sure, sure. Um, first, maybe let's look at the sutra score. So this is just an example of one of the many kind of compositions he was doing. This was like towards the end of his days in California and somewhat in the beginning of New York where he would uh, uh, set Buddhist sutras and mantras to, to music for various uh, instrumentation. And let me see. If we could go to calculations. Sorry, I have these weird names for these images. Um, so th this is one of the several like indecipherable pieces I found in his archive, and this had to do with analyzing, uh, this is a very like Harry Smith, Jerry Hunt kind of mind going yeah. on here, um, analyzing a vast catalog of folk music titles, uh, folk song titles, um, to unclear ends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but this gives you a sense, like you think of Arthur as this kind of like really playful, um, pop-oriented person, a lot of people come to him with that and don't really know that there's this like crazy genius 
madman in the back just kind of going through all this stuff. You, you, I mean, you've even got a breakdown in the book of like the, the world of Echo and like he had come up with a number, a numerical system that I don't remember the exact specifics. So by the end, he was able to get a seven out of oh, it. Yeah, right? yeah. And then he felt that that represented exactly what he was going for in terms of this number of perfection or, a, a, you know, something like that. So it's like that, that intellectual side, what, whatever those numbers equal, you know, is, no. really, is like something that was really important. Well, we can show uh, if you put on numerology. So yeah, Arthur probably would have been familiar with numerology early on, but there was an artist in New York that he would consult with. And so if he was coming up with a new song title, a new band name, a new album title, he would consult with this artist and they would alter uh, the title to reach a certain numeric, a desired numerical end. Um, and it's unclear. Uh, I talked with Elodie Lawton about, you know, what, did, what were you using to interpret the numbers? Um, right. And she just kind of held up a paperback kind of a pulp numerology t text. Um, so it's not Again, clear. Again, high and low, like no, <laughs> no, no, you know, yeah. Yeah, so he, it, was, it wasn't clear what Arthur was, you know, when he got a five, exactly what he was aiming for in the music, but you can see here, this is him calculating, uh, doing numerology for uh, several popular band names up top and then making up band names at the bottom. And for example, with I think Tire Tracks has a, a nice ring to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the, the disco music, like the Dinosaur L Project, that was another one that, you know, originally it was Triceratops M. <laughs> and he changed it to, to uh, reach a certain number. And Dinosaur L being the name that the, uh, that's the other thing about Arthur Russell that I'm sure made people who he recorded for uh, unhappy was that he would come up with different names for different projects so you know you didn't even know what also you harder to package when you're changing your identity yeah exactly <laughs> is is bastard light bulbs a real band or uh, one of the it can be <laughs> i think we're going to start bastard <laughs> light bulbs after this um yeah that's really fantastic uh, we i wanted to to touch on the instrumentals mm -hmm. which was a really uh, th that's a pretty important record in terms of when it comes to Arthur's Buddhism, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't proclaiming it to people on the streets. He wasn't walking around saying, ladies and gentlemen, I am a Buddhist songwriter, composer. He was just doing it. He, was, he had his own practice and he had his own, um, he had his own way of thinking about things. But the uh, instrumental series actually is more defined in terms of its connection to Arthur's Buddhism. Could you tell me a little, well, why don't we listen to a little of, sure. uh, let's listen to uh, Instrumentals 1 to give you a little sense of what he was up to here. <laughs> really fantastic stuff. So how did this one come together and how is it connected to his Buddhism in a direct fashion? Yeah, if we could put Instrumentals photo up. Um, Arthur was, you know, studying with his Shingon teacher, Yuko Nonomura, 
and he would travel back to Japan uh, and visit the mountain that's kind of sacred to Shingon tradition, where Sh Shingon was founded. And he would take photographs of, of the natural environment, and that's, uh, that natural imagery is pretty fundamental in, in Shingon, uh, mm -hmm. Shingon symbolism. Clouds, Clouds mountains. flowers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually beautiful photography. This, this is the performance of instrumentals at the kitchen. I was in the audience and took this photo. And that's one of Yuko's uh, photos of flowers up top. Mm. And so Arthur basically uh, decided he would, uh, well, it was at Yuko's suggestion that he, Arthur, make music inspired by clouds, by the photography of, of clouds and other things that he was taking pictures of. And Arthur jumped on that and really like dove deep. And it happened by way of, uh, again, these individual pitches. And I believe he began pairing pitches to each photograph. And he came up with 76 pitches to pair with these photographs. And if we could put instrumentals one image up, Sarah. So here, and I'm gonna use a little laser pointer. Folks, I don't wanna brag, this is the first time a laser pointer has been employed in Aquarium Drunkard's Transmissions uh, podcast history. So, <laughs> let's hear it. And, one thing I want to point out is, you know, some people come to the book and they see the musical notations and they're a little off-put. They're like, I don't read music or I don't know music theory. And I, I would say, then you're the best person to read this book um, because that's not why I'm showing a lot of the scores and that's not the way Arthur worked. It's most, most of what I'm talking about in the book when I show the scores is some symbolic. And you can see, uh, for example, here he has this row of 24 pitches on the left-hand side and this same pitches on the right-hand side. Um, and what, what he's done in between, and so there's a mirror reflection, and there's no relationship to the music uh, that these pillars kind of have. But in between, he's done response pitches. For example, for this pitch, he'll, he'll play it, and then he'll play on his cello uh, a response pitch, and he does this 10 times for each pitch going down this row. And so once he's gone through and done all these kind of variations and resp responding to these pitches, he starts drawing nonlinear lines across all the pitches he's made. And each line kind of represents a melody. And that's what he uses as kind of like the base for, his, for, the, for the instrumentals project. Uh, mm -hmm. If you could show instrumentals two, this is actually from the Singing Tractors, a later project he was working on. But what happens is uh, these response pitches that he does become pairs of pitches. And this is kind of the harmonic foundation of his music. And normal you know, musical harmony has at least three pitches to articulate the third, which gives you a sense of major and minor and all of that. And so Arthur essentially removes the third, which upends kind of Western tonal harmony uh, to a certain extent. And so he's working in a more modal way, mm -hmm. which gives it more flexibility. And so from, so from a page like this, a whole piece of music could come from, you know, uh, let's, from this first one, right? It could just be a drone, and he would improvise over it, and something maybe new would come out of that. Or he would take, you know, a string of these and make a chord, a chord progression, and then a piece would come out of that. So is this kind of like, magma of pitches, this field of sound that he could just pluck something out of 
and that would be like a seed. He could plant it in the creative field that he was working in, and it might grow into something else. Yeah. But he could always come back to it and generate new music. So it was a generative process that's, to me, I find it really fascinating and inspiring. Um, yeah, this, this idea that, like, that you could continue to get new things from a familiar source, or yeah. a trusted source in this yeah, case, yeah. one that he had devised himself. But also, just to point out, it, it, it was a series of kind of decision, uh, intuitive decision making that mm -hmm. he was doing. So he created, this is kind of a system, though Arthur wasn't a very systematic person, he could always abandon it at any point. But he would establish the system and then kind of draw material out of it in order to kind of get rid of his habitual tendencies as a yeah. composer, as a, as a creator, so that something, he was forced to engage with something different and new each time, and that kind of fed his creative process in a fundamental way. The book has so many great scenes that demonstrate what you're talking about, and I know I saw a few people picking it up in the bookstore, and yeah. I'm excited that they're going to get a chance to dig into it. But I mean, just evocative sounding scenes, you know, Arthur surrounded by a circle of Casio keyboards, uh, composing in accordance with lunar cycles, mm -hmm. things like this, like all these incredible things that just remind you that like, he was deeply interested in creating, like you said, systems, but often that those just served as like a, as a starting point or a prompt, you know, tools to get him where he was interested in going. And I know we wanted to touch on the City Park score, right? Because completely, we didn't plan this at all, but there's a performance of uh, Arthur's City Park piece taking place in New York right now, concurrent with this event. Um, and we didn't, we didn't plan that at all, but we were really pretty excited to see that. Can we bring up the city park score? Yeah. And it is a, a full moon, um, so that might be the kind of Maybe. synchronizing force. But um, this, this is one, like one of Arthur's earlier pieces, a very kind of strange piece. Charles Warrenen, a serialist composer and teacher that Arthur studied with in New York, said it was like the most horrible thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> Something to, the, to that effect. And, um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a series of instructions that were based on a turntable uh, cueing. And I'm really curious to hear what they do because it's a, such a strange piece. I, even studying everything I could, it was still hard to kind of conceptualize what it would actually sound like. I can't wait to see what's going on. And I'm just so excited that it's happening while, yeah, right we're, now. while we're doing <laughs> this. Uh, when Steve from Attica posted that, Alongside her, it was like what a what a cool what a cool thing to line up totally. synchronicity that is uh, appreciated. Well, we've been talking a lot about Arthur as a, a sort of systems thinker and how he would create these systems. But World of Echo, um, and and the newly released portrait of Bunny Rabbit, or picture, picture of, of picture of Bunny Rabbit, not a portrait, just a picture. Um, that was also recorded at the same time as World of Echo. It's from those same sessions. And World of Echo found Arthur uh, not really uh, creating elaborate systems, but sort of uh, more or less going freeform, right? And, and sort of, I think when I listen to the record, what's so clear to me is that he's attempting to create a kind of sonic space. And his idea of playing the songs and then letting the songs almost play themselves through the process of echo, delay, and utilizing that. But it's also a record where every sound feels intentional, even the sort of uh, shuffling of feet 
or the clicking of pedals or the various sounds that you hear, you know, the sort of murmurs. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's just such an incredible, an, an incredible record and one where embracing that freedom allowed him to go a place that he hadn't gone and I don't think anybody else has gone. But you had a uh, you had a piece that you wanted to to read in relation to that record, right? What are yeah. we going to hear? Well, I hadn't come across this text when I was writing the book. It's called the Tantric Poetry of Kukai, and that's the founder of the Shingon tradition. It's a beautiful collection of poetry, um, and Kukai, he you know he came up with the the Shingon uh, or developed the mandalas that became the foundation of Shingon when he was living in caves as a hermit, and Echo appears frequently in, the, in this writing, and for example, O Lord of Mysteries, should you understand the Shingon voice with the image of an echo, as a voice makes an echo, students of Shingon should understand it in this way. And you know, other images that he uses are images of a water, I'm sorry, images of the moon reflected in water, mm -hmm. or images of uh, light that you can make with like a torch if you make a circle or a triangle. Um, these are all ephemeral images, and so I think the way when Arthur was kind of entering into World of Echo, he was really approaching Echo as like, A, uh, facilitating the sonification of like a metaphysical space, mm -hmm. as well as kind of demonstrating the ephemerality through music that is fundamental to Shingon philosophy. And yeah, so when I read this book and, and read Kukai speaking directly to Echo, it's just like, Wow, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think like, I mean, just that notion of, of wanting to, to create a song that essentially, the, the idea of basically like, he's, ex he's extrapolating time in such a strange way, the way he plays with time on World of Echo. Um, when you're listening to it, it doesn't feel, it, it, it helps to allude to that sort of sense of like non-linear understanding and and sort of stepping out of the temporal zone a little bit yeah. and i think you know your podcast is named the hidden present and refers to uh, arthur's song hiding your present from you which uh, i think we could take a little listen to that which song? uh oh yeah hiding <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Where is he? Where is he? But no, no, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? I never want to stop playing that one. Yeah, so. no, seriously. <laughs> I mean, if there's like a better lyric at expressing the ineffable than when you see where it is but don't know where it is. I mean, to me, that's one of those songs that just speaks to a kind of knowing beyond knowing. And uh, it's also just so gorgeous. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it, it is like such a, a beautiful expression. So one, I see uh, why you, you know, why that title has lingered for you. But, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear what it is about that particular song that, that draws you in the way it does. I mean, part of it is the way that he's constantly changing the effects that he's using. So it's, it's, and this is part of kind of his general aesthetic is where you have something that's repeating, but the, the character of it is constantly undergoing mutation. Um, and that kind of constant change was also, you know, direct, directly tied to Buddhist philosophy. But um, the lyrics are beautiful. And, you know, looking at his notebooks, I found one uh, page where he's describing essentially uh, finding a birthday present in a cornfield. He was surrounded by cornfields in Oskaloosa, Iowa as a child. And so I, for him, that was uh, like a, an experience of bodhicitta. Mm -hmm. And so he kind of brought that into the song and abstracted it. Just the way he, and also the way like he abstracted that harmonica. There is that kind of Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan element in there, but it's like cattywampus. You know? Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's off kilter, it's, it's refracted. Um, it's just a magical song. And, and his voice, I mean, we, we haven't touched a ton on it, but we have alluded a little bit to the way he was interested in microtonality and that he was interested in sort of carving out those little spaces between, in Western musical notation, what we tend to think of as the right or wrong note. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in the space between those notes. And I think lyrically, uh, rather vocally, that's where he is, he has so much expressive ability with just like a sideways phrase or a murmur mm -hmm. or a s saying a word kind of weird you know all these things he would do to me that's just one of the most yeah, i love that song so much yeah definitely world of echo incorporated uh well a lot of arthur's work incorporated something that he would refer to as P ideas. Uh, as we're nearing our close tonight, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what what are P ideas, and can we? Oh yeah. 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 This was something I kind of found in the in the archives that I was just like, whoa, wait a minute. Um, you know, you would go through the notebooks, and suddenly everything was surrounded by parentheses, and they were often labeled P idea, P dash idea, or P period idea, and I was like, what the hell is a P idea? Um, and I found two references to parenthetical idea. He used that phrase. And then I was like, oh, well, that makes sense with all the parentheses. But I think, again, this is kind of Arthur kind of applying the first thought, best thought uh, philosophy to his notebooks, where he's just kind of collecting 
ideas that he's having or observations, like if he sees a, a sign on the street that he likes, the, a word that he likes, or uh, a dream he's had, memories from childhood, musical no notation, just anything uh, that uh, was inspiring, you know, in that way. And then he would kind of modularly create these pieces around this, these parenthetical ideas. And some of them are like really philosophical. Um, some are very hilarious. Some are stupid. Um, like, let me just read a few, or you want to read? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you go for if it. If I can't. Um, the, the top one is a good description of World, World of Echo. The search for a system which could conceivably encompass every possibility. Um, another one, uh, video, colon, girl wearing antlers, admiring me playing. <laughs> you know, this would be like an idea of sometimes you would play video projections and it would be like puppy dogs and kittens or a child playing with a balloon or something like that, very tender. And uh, so that would be like probably an idea for a video. Another, the next one is a P idea, the construction of a structure which can be abandoned at any moment and that is transparent, W-O-E, or World of Echo. And you can see him playing with the words here. This was him kind of with working with numerology and trying out different arrangements of words with the ideas that he wanted to capture. I love that the parenthetical ideas concept is it sort of like hinges on this notion of like, maybe you could try this or don't. Yeah. You know, like it that, was, it was, that was something I loved reading in the notebooks because he would always, even back when he was in California, when he was like 20 years old, he would be writing these really complex compositional systems and then he would be like, you know, use this pitch or don't. Or, you know, uh, use uh, Ponticello, uh, talk about cello techniques, and he's right. like, or don't do that. But one, <laughs> one, way, one reason he was doing that was kind of this non-dualism coming from the Buddhism, you know, where he was constantly reminding himself not to be attached to the thing that he was presenting for himself to work with. And so he was always offering himself the alternative, which I, th I think is beautiful and, and kind of insane. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want to know more about these three guys in the cab of a truck. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, I got to say, it's been beyond the beyond to hang out with you and talk about Arthur Russell. And also, um, we don't do the podcast live um, usually, so I'm never sure that anybody is listening, but uh, this time I am, and it's a nice feeling. Uh, it's also a really nice feeling to be in a room with people and listen to music. Um, that's a really powerful thing, and it sounds really good in here. So um, maybe we could, uh, do, do we want to play anything on our, on Actually, our way out? Do you want, do you got? Could we take like one step back to instrumentals real quick? Yeah, let's do it. Um, hold on, let's see. No, um, do mandala notation. We didn't do a volume we did two. We did skip. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so this was a, kind of a, a map of the kind of fundamental Shingon mandala that Arthur was working with both early on, and uh, this was from like the 80s. And so this was the first representation of the mandala I found in his archive. And he's kind of describing the deities and the mantras that go along with them. And then if you could put uh, mandala tapestry. And this is the mandala that he was describing. There's two mandalas that are kind of at the foundation of Shingon philosophy. And this one represents 
kind of the the Buddha nature uh, as applied into the world, manifesting in the world. The other mandala is more of like the cosmic perspective. And so Arthur was always kind of bridging those two in his music and instrumentals. This is a theory I kind of have. Uh, I don't think I put that in the book, but I really believe that volume one uh, is in response to this mandala, which is in the world. And so Arthur's music was for that volume one that we heard was more pop oriented. He was trying to like kind of imitate the like early radio hits. Um, Kind of a rock band context, yeah. too, right? Like the instrumentation. Popular music. Yeah. 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 And volume two was uh, ambient, no rhythm. You know, Arthur said you, uh, it was the radio music of the future or like music in outer space where you can't take your drums with, with you. <laughs> and so the fact that these two volumes were grouped that way and the mandalas represent exactly those things was pretty striking to me. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that Arthur, with volume two, explicitly envisioned himself creating the pop music of the future, and we now live in an age uh, that would have been the future for Arthur, and his music absolutely has inspired so much music now, current stuff. Not to mention that his recordings still sound like they come from 100 years from now. Uh, and uh, often, you know, he's been recontextualized and sampled in modern music. So he, like, legitimately did create the pop music of the future <laughs> in so many ways. Totally. And uh, I think your book does such an incredible job exploring that. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us here at PRS with all these fine folks to talk about it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Aquarium Drunkard, and thank uh, Philosophical Research Society. This is a really special place. Um, I hope you guys come back, those, are, those of you who are here for the first time. Yeah. We want to thank everybody. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Sarah. And if, um, if you want to play instrumentals, too, uh, as everybody uh, uh, concludes this evening, thanks so much for hanging out, everybody. You can find Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions wherever you get podcasts, but just go to AquariumDrunkard.com. That's where we put all the cool stuff we make. All of it. It's all there. AquariumDrunkard.com. You don't even have to go to Twitter first. Just go <laughs> AquariumDrunkard.com. That's where it's at. Thank you, guys. Thanks for Thanks. being here with us. We appreciate it. Matt Marvel. Thanks for being with us once again. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I produce, write, and host the show. Transmissions is edited by Andrew Horton. Our music this season has all been by Frank Mastin, drawn from his incredible discography of gorgeous library music. To find more, visit Mastin on Bandcamp. That's M-A-S-T-O-N bandcamp.com. Art for this episode was assembled by Thomas Wilson. Our show's executive producer is Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his weekly radio program, The Aquarium Drunkard Show, on Sirius XMU, Channel 35, 7 p.m. Pacific Time, each and every Wednesday. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. We recently just finished up uh, an airing of a fantastic oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man, assembled by J. Kelly Davis, featuring so many luminaries from the American indie rock, psychedelic, underground. Please go check out No Way Out. 
via the Talkhouse, and of course at Aquarium Drunker, where you can find everything that we put out. Next week on Transmissions, I'll be joined by Maria Elena Silva, who joins me to discuss her remarkable new record, Dulce. Be well until then. This transmission is concluded. <laughs>